You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great Memorial Day weekend for those of you in the States. Hopefully, unlike me, you didn't spend this week trying to get out of vacation mode. Two very mixed results on my end. But I'm here. I got the mic pointed at my mouth. So let's do this. For this week's two-sentence movie reviews of movies I saw in a movie theater, we've got three, Cruella, A Quiet Place 2, and The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. First, Cruella, it's the best live-action Disney remake, by far. Second isn't even close. This movie is super fun, super fabulous, great in a theater. Uh, Second, A Quiet Place 2 is a very worthy sequel to the first one, which I absolutely loved. And the best part is the filmmakers didn't just make the exact same movie with slightly different circumstances as its sequel. This movie is super jumpy, super new, very well done. Out of these three, the one I was most excited for and probably the most dissatisfied with was The Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It. This film was not helmed by Conjuring franchise originator James Wan, as the two previous Conjuring films had been, and boy oh boy can you tell. They let the guy that made the worst film in the franchise, The Curse of La Llorona, in my opinion, direct this film. Even with the time this dude has spent around this world and this franchise and the familiarity he had to have with it, it's clear he didn't know what made the first two Conjuring films special. This film is still okay while the first half is. The first half is actually pretty good. But the break from format from the last two Conjuring films fell flat for me. It was fun to see it in a theater, but definitely doesn't have the rewatchability that its predecessors definitely have. That was way more than two sentences, but I let my fingers vent for me because I'm still a little bit bummed. Moving on, you know what's up. New month, new theme. For the month of June, we're moving into one of the darkest sides of the entertainment industry and covering the lives of four people whom didn't get the Hollywood endings they dreamed of when they first rolled into Tinseltown. Some got their dreams only to meet tragic endings. Some never got the chance to stand in front of a camera and live their dreams. We all strive to make it in Hollywood. And sometimes, well, honestly, most times, it just doesn't work out. Life's unfair like that. In the case of the four people we cover this week, they don't make it out of Tinseltown alive. The first episode of this month was originally actually going to be my first episode of this entire podcast. As I began working on the podcast around the time the Ryan Murphy show Hollywood came out in May of last year. However, it became clear when I began researching the life of this person that I needed to lay some groundwork before we could talk about the tragedy surrounding this week's subject. This week we're covering the life of Peg Entwistle. 
a young actress who ended her life tragically by leaping off the sign that represented to her all of the broken promises and the dreams that never came true for her. While the tabloids sensationalized her death, today we're going to meet the real Peg, the one whom dreamt of being an actress from nearly the moment she was born. As a heads up, there are mentions of suicide and suicide ideation in this episode. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Millicent Lillian Entwistle made her entrance into the world in Port Talbot, Wales on February 5th, 1908 to Robert and Emily Entwistle. Millicent would spend her formative years in the West Kensington suburb of London. The actress that would one day be known as Peg had been born into a theater family, at least on her father's side. Her father, Robert, was a moderately successful stage actor, enough so to keep the family comfortable, but it was his brother Charles, Peg's uncle, that was the bigger star and later a successful theatrical manager. If you don't know what a manager is, they're basically the person responsible for shaping their clients' careers in like the day-to-day and long-term sense. In 1910, when Peg was two, Robert divorced Emily for an unknown reason. Whatever it was, however, was severe enough that she was not allowed to see her daughter as Robert was rewarded sole custody by the judge. Early stories about Peg claimed that her mother had died at this time, but research has proven otherwise. Peg and her father would travel to America for the first time in 1913, where Robert made his Broadway debut thanks to the help of Charles, whom was a thriving theater manager in the States by this point. He'd also married an American actress named Jane Ross, whom the young Peg was quite smitten with. While Robert did moderately well on the stage, he never managed to make the dent in the industry that Charles did. What Robert did manage to find at this time was love. Her name was Loretta Ross, the sister of his brother's wife, Jane. The two married in 1914, giving Peg a devoted new stepmother. Around this time, Peg, who was known to her family at this time as Babs, changed her name to Peg. She did this after seeing the original production of Peg of My Heart with her Aunt Jane. The production and the actors in it served as motivators for the young actress for the duration of her short life. The Entwistle family continued to thrive in New York, and by 1917, Peg had fully been bitten by the acting bug. Her father, however, had fallen out of love with the craft, realizing that the income of a working actor would not support his vastly growing family. He and Loretta welcomed a son in 1917, and a third child was on the way not long after. Robert opened a very successful gift box business that catered to the wealthy of New York to support the family. The end of World War I and the Spanish flu in 1919 gave way to the Roaring Twenties. Peg was 12 and pining to continue the family tradition of acting. Her Aunt Jane, a professional actress herself, was more than happy to foster her niece's aspirations. Thanks to her father and uncle's work as well, Peg also had access to other actors who were more than happy to answer her questions. Peg familiarized herself with her fellow actresses of the day and read every trade and showbiz periodical that she could get her hands on. She really had 
all of the best tools you could hope for to get acting work. Connections, access, privilege, and training. But any actor could tell you that passion and talent doesn't necessarily yield acting work. On April 2nd, 1921, Peg's mother died from bacterial meningitis. The responsibility of looking after Peg's young half-brothers and her father fell to the 13-year-old. Nineteen months after his wife's death, Robert was struck by a limousine in the street. The driver reportedly got out of the car, saw Robert's mangled body, and then sped off into the night. A partial plate was taken down by witnesses, but the driver was never found. Robert's spine was snapped in two places and part of it had penetrated his brain. He was taken to a hospital that might be able to treat these grave injuries. Unfortunately, the damage was too great, and on December 19, 1922, Robert succumbed to his injuries. His brother Charles was the one to break the news to a devastated Peg and her young brothers, whom were now orphans. Peg would carry the trauma of losing her two parents at this young age for the rest of her life. By this point, Charles and Jane had been married for 10 years and were childless, on purpose. Now, of course, the situation had changed drastically as parenting their niece and nephews fell onto them. Peg's mother was likely still alive at this point, but Robert had put in his will that he did not want his ex-wife to raise his daughter. The new family of five packed up the New York apartment that once held Robert Entwistle and his family and shipped their remaining belongings to Ohio, where Charles and Jane now lived. They would eventually relocate to Los Angeles when Peg's brother fell ill with a severe ear infection. The doctors treated the boy, but recommended they move to a warmer climate to prevent it from getting worse. Soon after, Peg was accepted into a boarding school in San Diego, where she thrived academically but was very unhappy. Her uncle Charles, however, struggled to find steady work in Hollywood, though his management of several Broadway talents kept the family in relative comfort. They managed to buy a home for the new family, which still stands to this day. Though no longer owned by the family, many people visit the home on their way to the Hollywood sign. In fact, one late summer day in 1923, a young Peg Entwistle stood on the front porch of her family's L.A. home, watching workmen take the pieces of the Hollywood sign up the hill. Peg, tiring of the early days her boarding school required, finished her term in 1924 and returned to Hollywood, where she finished her education via a tutor. She also continued her diligent studying of plays and the goings-on in Broadway. Peg began her formal acting training at the Hollywood Theater Community School, where her teacher immediately noticed Peg's potential and urged her aunt to get her an agent and in front of studios. She thought Peg had what it took to become a movie star. But Peg wanted to be on the stage. 
1925, Entwistle was living in Boston as a student of Henry Jewett's repertory, now called the Huntington Theater, and was one of the Henry Jewett players, who were gaining national attention at the time. Actor Walter Hampton, a client of Peg's uncle's, would give Peg her Broadway debut at this time, an uncredited walk-on part in his production of Hamlet, which starred Ethel Barrymore. Peg carried the king's train and brought in the poison cup at the end of the play. Peg would make her formal professional debut in the play The Rivals as the youngest member of the Repertory Theater of Boston as Lucy, a conniving maid. The play received good reviews and was even broadcast on a local Boston radio station. A series of productions followed, but the next of note for Peg would be The Wild Duck. Peg's performance in this play, while not doing much for her own career, led to one of the most iconic figures of screen starting hers. In January 1926, an aspiring actress by the name of Betty Davis couldn't afford to attend acting school. Instead, her mother managed to scrape together enough money for her and her daughter to see a production of Henrik Ibsen's The Wild Duck at a repertory theater in Boston. There, Betty would be awestruck at the face of Peg Entwistle, both just 17 years old at the time. Peg played Hedvig, a wild 14-year-old girl, dealing with the family drama that comes to light regarding her parentage. Peg became Betty's inspiration for making it as an actress after seeing the play. In her memoir, Betty stated, quote, It was my first theater, and a whole new world opened up to me. My heart almost stopped. She looked just like me. Betty would traipse the boards three years later in Boston, playing the same ill-fated character she saw Peg perform as Peg herself was climbing to her own ill-begotten end. Peg decided to try her hand at Broadway and moved to New York in June 1926 to pursue her lifelong dream. Peg's early experience in New York City was quite different than what she'd experienced on the Boston stage. The reviews weren't as good, the theaters weren't as full, and Peg disliked the tiny offices crammed with dozens of girls all vying for the same parts. By late 1926, Peg had been recruited by the New York Theater Guild, and her first credited Broadway performance was in June of that year as Martha and the Man from Toronto, which opened at the Selwyn Theater and ran for only 28 performances. The reviews for that play were utterly abysmal, though Peg's performance was touted. Peg performed in 10 Broadway plays as a member of the New York Theater Guild between 1926 and 1932. Her longest play was the 1927 hit Tommy, which ran for 232 performances and became the play for which Peg was most remembered. Peg played Mary Thurber, a young girl who was determined not to marry her good-hearted suitor just because her parents want her to. 
Tommy turned Peg into a stage star. She received a write-up in the New York Times article and Who is Peg Ant Whistle. Tommy would appear on the top attractions of the year in Variety. Broadway success came with a pay bump to match, and Peg managed to move out of her uncle's apartment. He split time between L.A. and New York due to his work on her own in an all-women's apartment building on Beekman Street, about 15 minutes away from Times Square. When the option came to go on the national tour of Tommy, Peg turned it down. She was in love and a newlywed to boot. Robert Lee Keith was 10 years Peg's senior, a fellow actor. Articles revolving around the two's romance stated that they married after knowing each other for a mere four days in April 1927. But this is not entirely accurate. Yes, they got married after four days of, sure, let's call it dating. But in a letter to her aunt, in which she apologized for the surprise wedding none of her family knew about, Peg states she'd known Robert for about a year. They became reacquainted at a party on a Thursday, got engaged on Friday, and married on on Monday. Robert didn't have a ring, of course, and used a prop one from the play he was performing in at the time as a stand-in. I've got leftovers in my fridge older than their relationship was when they got married. Turns out, would you believe, that the dude Peg had just married after dating him for four days had not disclosed everything about his past. He'd even lied on their marriage certificate, saying that he had never been married. Not to judge, but at 29, Peg Entwistle wasn't Robert's first wife. She wasn't his second wife. She was his third wife. And surprise, Peg was now the stepmother to a six-year-old she had no idea existed when she got married. Peg hated kids and made it no secret in the press that she had zero desire to become a mother. The two people who acted as witnesses for the couple's marriage were Robert's best friend and Robert's mother, whom both obviously knew he was lying on the marriage license and signed a document agreeing that what he'd written on it was true because they knew it would be easy to lie to a love-struck teenager. Lovely people just all around. When Robert eventually came clean, Peg managed to keep her cool, despite the fact that her husband was reportedly mad-hammered when he eventually confessed. The boy lived with his mother outside of the city, so Peg would only have to deal with the child when he came to the city. Super mad, but having no desire to admit the mistake she'd made, you know, like a teenager, Peg decided to stick it out with Robert. Peg would get pregnant herself in 1927, and between performances of her current play, she would get an abortion from, quote, a friend of Bob's. Not surprising given how shady he's been thus far that Robert had an abortion guy in his back pocket. But the choice to get the abortion was hers and hers alone, as evidence in a letter to her aunt, in which she expresses relief at no longer being pregnant. Abortions at this time were a big no-no and even a felony in New York. They also took a toll physically, which might explain reviews of Peg from this time that describe her as, quote, weak and frail. The decision to get an abortion could have also affected her career. If news of that had ever gotten out during her lifetime, Peg's career on Broadway would have been over in an instant. For one reason or another, Peg's longest stint of unemployment followed. From October 1927 to April 1928. In April... She and her husband were added to the touring company of the New York Theater Guild. Peg was excited for the future as her one-year wedding anniversary approached. Then, scandal struck. 
Robert wasn't paying his alimony, and an NYPD detective served Robert court papers in August 1928, which stated that if he didn't pay up, his ass was going to jail. Peg was mortified as the papers had been served while the couple were having breakfast in a hotel dining room. They were famous enough that people definitely knew who they were when that happened. The two tried to come up with the $1,000 that Robert owed, but failed, and Robert was carted off to jail. Peg had to ask for an advance from the couple's new employer, and they hadn't even started rehearsing the plays yet. The theater tour began in October of 1928, and they visited dozens of cities. Robert was the head of the troupe, basically like a team captain, and road life did not agree with him. His drinking went from moderate to severe practically overnight. He got into a bar fight in West Virginia, which caused further legal woes. At one of their stops on the tour, he returned to he and Peg's hotel room drunk, attacked Peg, grabbing her by the hair and violently beating her. Peg moved from the room, intending to divorce him. But, as is the case in many relationships like these, Robert sobered up long enough for Peg to forgive him. Within three weeks, the abuse was worse than it had ever been. News of Robert's abuse reached their employer, Teresa Hellburn, whom fired Robert for his behavior. Being blacklisted by the Guild meant Robert would never be able to work on Broadway again, and he moved west to Hollywood to lick his wounds. His former company, including Peg, would be in Los Angeles soon for a four-week engagement. Four months elapsed since Robert had been fired from the guilds, and those four months had been transformative for Peg. She was greeted by her West Coast family at the train station upon her arrival, a rejuvenated woman. As had been the case on every stop of the tour, the guild was met with excellent reviews in Los Angeles. Then a ghost returned to haunt them. On April 16, 1929, Robert showed up at the theater, shit-faced, and was refused entry because of how drunk he was. Robert blocked the only way out of the theater, and several of Peg's co-stars, upon seeing him, ran back to the dressing room to warn Peg about her unwanted visitor. He humiliated her once again. Peg would eventually meet him out front, promising to talk to him the next day, if he was sober. The following day, she picked him up in her aunt's car and took him for a drive, during which time she told him that she was done and would be filing for divorce. It was the day before their second wedding anniversary. Peg was granted the divorce the following month and would be officially divorced one year after the judge granted it to her. When the company returned to New York, Peg was not brought back onto the Guild, despite her glowing reviews. They didn't want to deal with Robert showing up at the theaters, despite her being granted a divorce from him. Is this fair? Absolutely not. But it's what happened. Peg cut her losses and moved back to Hollywood. Peg took up residence behind her family home in Hollywood, which she purchased with money she'd saved from the tour in 1929. Peg fell into a depression not long after and confided to a friend that she'd been having suicidal ideations. The friend wrote Peg a poem about her feelings, which included the fact that Peg was thinking about ending her life by jumping from a high place. 
Peg's fortunes would change shortly, though, as she was offered a part on the farewell tour for actor William Gillette and a production of Sherlock Holmes in 1929. 21-year-old Peg would play the 75-year-old actor's love interest. She would play the role until early May 1930. Peg performed for the last time for the Guild in Getting Married in 1931. They didn't want her, mind you. They had to take her as part of her contract from 1928 included one guaranteed New York production. This was the last play they could put her in without being in breach of their contract. The fact that she wasn't truly welcome there, somewhere she had been very happy, hurt Peg deeply. Several short-lived Broadway productions would follow for the young actress, who would make her final Broadway appearance in Alice Sit by the Fire, which was written by J.M. Barry of Peter Pan fame, which also starred Lorette Taylor, whose alcoholism led her to two missed evening performances and refunds to ticket holders for the production. Lorette had played Peg in the play Peg of My Heart, the play that inspired Peg Entwistle to change her name. She hadn't been on stage in nearly four years since the the death of her husband. Lorette's unreliable behavior and downright odd behavior at public engagements caused the play to close early on April 6, 1932. This would be Peg Entwistle's final Broadway bow. By May 1932, at the height of the Great Depression, Peg had already returned to Los Angeles with a role in the play The Mad Hopes, starring Billy Burke, best known as Glinda the Good Witch from Wizard of Oz, and Humphrey Bogart, which ran from May 23rd to June 4th at the Belasco Theater in downtown Los Angeles. Because of the Great Depression, every beautiful young girl from virtually every town in America had flooded Hollywood in search of stardom and fortune. So did nearly every out-of-work, well-trained Broadway performer, including Peg. Everyone was trying to feed their starving families back home. After the Mad Hopes closed, Peg landed her first and only credited film role with Radio Pictures, later RKO. The film was 13 Women, which starred Myrna Loy and Irene Dunn, a pre-code high-budget thriller produced by David O. Selznick and based on a novel by Tiffany Thayer. Peg played a small supporting role as Hazel Cousins. RKO production reports show that Peg's original scenes totaled about 16 minutes and 15 seconds. Of this, approximately 75% of her performance hit the cutting room floor. The film premiered on October 14, 1932 in New York City, releasing in Los Angeles a month later, to neither critical nor commercial success. Peg would never see the film completed. Peg had been on a shortlist for another RKO film, Bill of Divorcement, a role that eventually went to newcomer Katherine Hepburn. Peg had likely been given the role in 13 Women as recompense for not getting the Bill of Divorcement part. As mentioned throughout this episode, Peg was passionate not only about theater, but acting as well. She loved it as an art form as well as a profession. So it became a very hard pill to swallow when, on film sets, she was working alongside women whom had been hired for their looks, discovered at soda shops and parks, having not put in years of hard work and studying that Peg and her fellow stage thespians had put in. This attitude led to a row with a fellow actress on the RKO backlot, though no further details are known. This was not an unusual case, as many stage actors had resentment to those whom had only ever acted in the pictures. On September 14, 1932, it was announced that Peg's one-picture deal with RKO would be just that, when she and three other actresses were cut from Radio Pictures' lineup. 
Two days after that, E.J. Montagny, the scenario chief at RKO, which was kind of like a head writer by modern terms, the man instrumental in keeping Peg's role and 13 women off the cutting room floor, died suddenly of a heart attack. Peg's character had a lesbian storyline, one that was frowned upon as the Hayes Code was beginning to take effect in Hollywood. This was why her role in the film was so heavily reduced. Additionally, Billy Burke had previously announced that she wouldn't want to take Mad Hopes to Broadway, something that had been planned, putting the show's future in jeopardy. Peg had no other work lined up. We will likely never know what the final straw was for Peg, but we do know what happened next. Peg stood at the door of her family's Beechwood Drive home on Friday, September 16, 1932, and told her uncle and aunt that she was going to get a book from a drugstore in Hollywoodland and then see some friends. Her uncle would note later that nothing seemed off about his niece's farewell. The family didn't worry when she wasn't home late that night, as actors were known for partying into the wee hours of the morning. When Saturday turned into Sunday night, however, her Aunt Jane became concerned. This was not like Peg to be gone for this long. Jane went looking for her at the Hollywood Studio Club, which was an all-women apartment complex known for being a safe place for young women trying to break into Hollywood. A few reported having seen her there, but nothing concrete. No one knew where Peg was. A call came into the LAPD on Sunday evening at 9 p.m., a little over 48 hours after Peg had vanished. It was a woman. She told the officer manning the phone lines that she had been hiking near the Hollywood land sign, and near the bottom, she found a woman's shoes and jacket. A little further on, she found a purse. In it was a suicide note. Further down the mountain, she stated that she'd seen a body. The woman also stated she didn't want any publicity in this matter and had wrapped up the jacket, shoes, and purse in a bundle and laid them on the steps outside the Hollywood police station. An officer at that station found them not long after. Inside the purse, he found the suicide note as promised. It read, quote, I am afraid I'm a coward. I am sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, it would have saved a lot of pain. The letter was signed simply P.E. Two officers were dispatched to the hills, where it took them nearly an hour to locate Peg's remains. The officers hypothesized that she had climbed a ladder behind the 50-foot-tall H of the Hollywoodland sign and jumped. If you're squeamish, you might want to jump forward about 30 seconds. The jump from that high up meant that Peg hit the ground going nearly 50 miles per hour. The impact shattered her pelvis and the actress was propelled an additional 100 feet down the hillside due to the impact of hitting the ground and the steep hill the sign is located on. She landed in a ravine where she likely died within four minutes of jumping. The items within her purse gave the detectives few clues as to who she was, and Peg's body was brought to the morgue in the early hours of September 19th. That day, the Los Angeles Examiner published an article entitled, Girl Ends Life in Hollywood Mountain Leap. Pretty Young Woman Jumps to Death from Top of Letter H of Huge Sign, Initials P.E. In it, they described the young woman's features. This was how the Entwistle family learned about their beloved Peg's fate. Charles would identify his niece's broken body the next day. Once the paperwork was done, reporters outside hounded Charles for information as to why he thought Peg would end her own life, leading to headlines like, Defeated in her film career, Peg Entwistle leaps off giant sign. 
Suicide Beauty, identified as Hollywood actress. New York actress leaps to death from giant sign. And on and on and on. Peg's funeral took place on September 20th, 1932, in an Episcopal service at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. She was cremated in a dress made for her by her Aunt Jane, and her remains were eventually laid to rest near her father and stepmother in an Ohio cemetery. Peg's death would become a symbol of broken dreams that Hollywood all too often doles out. She would be labeled as a failed actress by tabloids, probably because it sounded more tragic. But the truth is, Peg wasn't a failed actress. Peg Entwistle was a veteran of the stage, a prodigious talent by many accounts, whom after a slew of disappointments decided that she could no longer go on. Her story is a tragedy, one that unfortunately is not all that rare in the echelons of Tinseltown. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. I am at the mercy of the algorithms. In order to keep making this podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. I've also got really cool merch. Check that out at the link in the show notes. Next week, the life and legend of Elizabeth Short, better known to the world as the Black Dahlia. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.